Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we're speaking with Wesley Serp, President and Lead Strategist at Risk Management Advisors. To start this introduction, I'm going to reference an interview I did with Kevin Vela, an attorney and founding partner at Vela Wood. Kevin made the point that when it comes to advisory for businesses, they need three things, a good attorney, a good accountant, and a good insurance advisor. Insurance is a highly complex world, and Wesley's invested his career in mastering it. In this episode, we go well beyond just buying off-the-shelf insurance and discuss captive insurance companies. The point is, is that if you can't beat the insurance company, why not be it? It's a fascinating conversation for a world that I had no idea existed. In short, a captive insurance company is an insurance company owned by the insured. As you'll find out, it's a very powerful tool for risk mitigation, tax efficiency, and really capital appreciation. With all the interviews I do, it seems a really good stuff comes later in our conversation. I was going to draw an analogy of opening up and letting a nice bottle of wine breathe, but just trust me on this. You're going to learn a lot from our conversation the more it develops. Enjoy the show. Wesley, welcome to the show. <laughs> you, you've morning, been listening to the podcast already. Yeah, I know. I'm, I, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> Good man. We connected and you work in a very interesting world of insurance and more to it, captive insurance, which I'd never heard about. But when I did, I thought to myself, there's something to be had here. There's something to be learned. And I think the best way about going about it is, is you giving us a bit of a background on uh, yourself and the industry. And then let's get into perhaps even a bit of a case study of, of how captive insurance can be applicable to those building businesses. Oh, perfect. So I used to sell insurance and about, so I started the industry in 1994 selling insurance. And then I realized about 2000, it didn't matter how much commission I got paid, that the insurance companies always had more money than I did. And I tried to figure out how do you become an insurance company? And then a bit of a researcher by nature. So I went deep on it. And I actually found a book that was written in the early 80s, like 1980 by Andrew Tobias. And it was called The Invisible Bankers. And it goes through how insurance companies work, all the tax laws surrounding them, and how basically they're, this was in the 1980s how they've become the invisible banks in our economy. And it only, they've only become bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's like, they had that movie too big to fail. So my partner, Jared and I, we decided, you know what, let's start our own insurance company. We did and grew that in 2004. We said, let's take what we know and what we've done building our own insurance company and take that and, and make that the service of risk management advisors. So that's what we did. So since 2004, we've, designed, implemented, and managed insurance companies 
all over the world for medium sized to large sized businesses. Interesting. Yeah. Risk management and the world of insurance can be a huge line item on the P&Ls of companies. And it's, it's got to be there. You know, in our, our pre-call, we were quickly discussing DNO insurance for the cannabis industry and how expensive that is. So I want to get into some examples there from building your own insurance company. And, and actually, I just, you know, you look, no wonder why uh, Warren Buffett is so big on insurance because it is a money maker. Moving out of that, then captive insurance. And how does that fit into your career and what you do now with the, the advising and what is captive insurance? Yeah, perfect. So Corey, a, a captive is an insurance company that a business owner sets up to insure their own business. So they can insure their property, cash fee, liability, workers comp, health insurance, DNO, ENO. It really, whatever there, whenever a business has a large line item for their insurance, that's where a captive could be applicable. So it's a client's own insurance company. Let's say so with your business, you create Cleveland Insurance and your business writes premiums over to Cleveland Insurance in exchange for a policy. In the event that there's a claim, then your business would submit it to your insurance company and your insurance company would pay back, just like AIG, Zurich's Liberties of the world. But then, because you're really a smaller insurance company, most of our clients don't want to take all that risk on themselves. So what we do is we go out to the global reinsurance market and buy reinsurance, which is really just insurance for insurance companies. Like you may buy a $2 million policy limit from your own insurance company. But yep. let's say you only wanted to take $500,000 of risk. Then your insurance company goes out to reinsurance market and says, okay, we want to buy a policy that covers a million and a half dollars in excess of the 500 that we're willing to take. Right. I've got so many questions about this, but what, what is a use case for this? Like, and what size business would be start being interested in putting together their own private insurance company? Because to me, it, it starts to make sense. And I think we can get into the, the ins and outs of the taxation, the ins and outs of the, the actuarial work that would have to be done, you know, all that kind of stuff. But who's this applicable to? I would say any business that pays, let's say, over a million dollars a year in insurance between their insurance spends, I think is an ideal business to look at captives. Now, whether or not it's a perfect fit for them, that's determined by a lot of things like how many employees do they have? What are their claims? So you could have a million dollars in premium, but two million in claims, and you're not an ideal. How much is the reinsurance? Different industries have different reinsurance prices. Right. But in general, I'd say for your audience, a million dollars or more in spend, you know, we have some businesses that go down to a couple hundred thousand dollars because they have great claims and they're willing to take the risk for without buying reinsurance. Just to confirm by spend, you mean the, the equivalent of monthly premiums or annual premiums you're paying to the AIGs, to the, the Sun Lifes or whoever is out there covering you. That's the, the monthly fee you're paying to have that coverage. Yep. Correct. Yeah. A business is spending 500,000, 750, a million bucks as kind of an entry point to this. That's where it starts to become potentially beneficial to have your own insurance company. And 
we might get more details going, but like I started thinking about the the tax benefits of this and the applicability. And then the one perhaps question before that is if you start up your own insurance company to cover yourself, how much liability protection do you need in there? Like how much do you need a, a chunk of capital to be in that that corporation to cover it? You do. But how much capital you need depends on the jurisdiction that you set your insurance company up. Right. So if you go to Bermuda, Bahamas, you know, large Cayman, Grand Cayman, large jurisdictions, it's probably $100,000 in capital. Let's say you wanted to write $10 million in coverage and your premiums are a million dollars a year, then no jurisdiction in the world is going to allow you to just put $100,000 in to that insurance company if you didn't want to buy reinsurance. Their number one job as an insurance commissioner or regulator is to make sure that your insurance company has enough money to pay a claim. Right. Our clients, they have to buy reinsurance because they may, the regulators in general may, if you don't want to buy reinsurance, they may make you put 30% of your policy limits in capital and surplus. So if you wrote a $10 million policy limit, if you didn't want reinsurance, they may make you put in $3 million of capital. So most clients say, you know what, I'd rather buy reinsurance for a lot less money than go get a $3 million letter of credit and pay that bank fee. Yeah, okay. And then that that reinsurance would be some, I would imagine, tax deductible within that corporation. Now that we've kind of got the you know, the building blocks of this, of what a captive insurance company is and, and how it's applicable. Can you walk us through any real world examples that would fit and kind of give us the the metrics and the and almost a bit of a case study? Because I think if you were to paint that picture, it'd be it would, for all of us would start to come together really well. So let's say, I mean, with all the different clients we have, I would say there probably is not an industry that we don't cover. Because as far as size goes, right now with all the captives managed under our umbrella, we're now the eighth largest manager of captives in the world and third largest as far as premium dollars. That's with the likes of Marsh and Aon, you know, so some pretty big players. But let's take a regional construction company where their premiums for their construction risk and their products and completed operations. So that's in the event that they build it. You get your certificate of occupancy or you sell the single family home to somebody. They have to cover that for a 10 year period of time. So what we can do is we can create the insurance company and they could pay those premium dollars to their own company. And then we go get reinsurance on the back end. But instead of, because if you think about construction risk specifically, it may take two years from when you buy the policy to when that project's done. And then you have a 10 year products and complete operations. So you're on the hook for construction defect for 10 years. Mm. But most lawsuits come in the ninth year. So now that puts you out 11 years from when you paid the premium. And then, so the insurance company takes dollars today for a claim that may not happen. Hmm. Or they may not have to pay out for 15 years. Right. And that's where it makes sense. In the States, health insurance has become, after payroll, the second largest line item for many of our clients. It's much more cost effective to create their own insurance company to insure their own employees than it is to go out 
to Blue Cross, Blue Shield, United, Cigna, all of those. And reinsurance, there's tons of companies, a lot of capacity. I'm here in Las Vegas for the cannabis convention. And I have a lot of, a lot of meetings and clients that are here, but cannabis is very difficult to get insurance. If you think about it, this year, just in the U.S., it's going to be a $30 billion industry. Hmm. And I can't think of another industry that's been let down by the in- traditional insurance market more than the cannabis. Think right. about a $30 billion industry where they just can't have no good options for insurance. Yep. And our clients, they needed directors and officers insurance because they were taking in either private equity or venture money to grow their businesses. And those private equity companies required them to have directors and officers. Well, right now for directors and officers insurance, it's not uncommon that there are not large policy limits. So really the most you can get is one or $2 million in DNO, where a publicly traded company could get 50 or $100 million in directors and officers. So they're right. limited in what they can buy. But a million-dollar policy could cost you $300,000 in premium where you're taking a $250,000 retention each and every occurrence. Just quickly, just define those terms quick. I, again, premium being annually, you're paying 300000 bucks just to hold that policy. The $250,000 retention. If there's a claim, they have to pay out the first 250000 of every claim that comes down right. the road. That's your your deductible, effectively. Yeah, before the insurance company will pay out. So now if you think about it, let's say you had a a claim. Well, they're into it for $250,000 plus the three. They're into it for $550,000. But as a growing company, they may not have a claim ever, but they may, I mean, certainly three, four, five years is not out of the realm of possibility. So in the first two years, they've paid more money and taken more retention than their total policy limits. Yeah. It's crazy when you think about it. And I think there's so many, I mean, the, the cannabis industry is, is is such a fascinating space when it comes to this because insurance company will have no problem insuring an alcohol or spirits company kind of thing. But cannabis, there's a big, big issue there. And that's a lot of legacy. But if I was to ask that when you've got a a cannabis company is an example, and they put together a captive insurance company of their own to cover these kind of risks. You say that the reinsurance market, so let's say they needed that 50 million in, in DNO. They were only able to put up a million, so they need 49 million. I'm throwing out numbers here and please yeah. massage them if they're off. But So you're saying that you can't get direct insurance for cannabis, but you can go out and get a, a reinsured policy for a cannabis company? You can. Because there's a big difference between insurance, because insurance is, in many cases, it's state-run under the McCarran-Ferguson Act, but it's also, there's federal laws that say you cannot insure something that goes against public policy. Okay. So these carriers are not able to... Oh my God, what a wonderful loophole. And what makes it worse is insurance companies like AIG will come in and they'll, they'll write the policies like a policy specific in that state, like California. But then when a claim comes down the road, they'll say, oh, we can't cover it because this goes against public policy. Hmm. This will refund the premiums instead of paying the claim. I mean, it's crazy. But reinsurers, they're not subject to the same law because you're using the self-procurement law. 
So an insurance company, it's not that the one critical distinction is with an insurance company, they have to come in and market to sell the policy in the state. Okay. But, you know, in certain states, they can't. And a lot of times it takes a broker so the broker can't. But self-procurement is the insurance company is going out to find reinsurance. It's not that reinsurance. Yeah, it's not Genry, Swiss Re, any of these that are coming in and soliciting. Right. Your insurance company, your captive is going out to solicit them and they can write that insurance. So there, there is some capacity now whether or not any reinsurer will go to $50 million. You know, I've okay. never had that, but I mean, we've, you know, they'll go to $10 million. Yeah. Hey, just arbitrary numbers, but I mean, I think what you did there is illustrated a really neat, in an interesting, effectively a loophole or uh, something that that only an expert would understand who's in the the business like yourself. So, wow, what a what a what an interesting example and and uh, space to be in. So, where else to go with this? So, if if you're a business, you've created this captive, you now have it as an insurance company. I, I really like. Can we continue down the regional construction company because I think that's a something we can all easily understand. You say most claims come in year nine, which I, I'm assuming, I mean, insurance is a data-driven industry, that that's the, probably the go-to. Mm-hmm. And those claims coming in year nine, effectively, the, the company is, instead of that captive that the construction company sets up, it almost becomes an investment vehicle as well along the way, does it not? Yeah, it does, but that's all insurance companies are, whether it's a captive or AIG or Liberty or Zurich or Sun Life. All those companies are our investment vehicles. Yeah, please expand on that because I don't think a lot of people understand that. So insurance companies take in dollars today and then they have expenses they have to pay. They have to pay commissions. They have to go and buy reinsurance. But whatever's left over, they get to as long as they say we need this money sitting there in reserves to pay claims, then it's not taxable to the insurance company. So the insurance company gets to take all of that extra money. Let's say an AIG takes in a billion dollars and they had 200 million in claims. They paid out 100 million in commission and then it took them 200 million to run their business. That leaves 500 million dollars in their company for that year. As long as they say we need this 500 million in order to pay claims in the future, then that's not taxed. As long as they have claims, so let's say they made a 5% investment yield on that, then that's 25 million on that 500 million. As long as they, they use the $25 million in claims from the next year to offset that, hmm. so they'll say, oh, we're taking this. And then that way they're, they're not taxing that pool. But then they'll keep those claims open for years. I'm sure. You've seen it and and your listeners have seen it if they own a business where, you know, the claim is closed, but the insurance company still keeps it open for a couple of years. Hmm. They do that because they're waiting for more claims to come down the road so they can use those reserves they're releasing to say, oh, we still need these reserves for this. Until I mean, I pay out. Yeah. And, and I have to admit, as owning an insurance company, we were part of that whole system. Yeah. I think from a a practice of financial engineering. It's pretty fascinating. And, and, you know, a lot of brains goes behind that. But then you also look and, and for the end customer who paid for your insurance only to be, you know, strung out 
for that time because it's waiting for for the benefit to go to the insurance company until they pay you out. You can see where that's a little bit of a bit of a bite. Yeah. When you have these hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that are inside the insurance company, well, we talk let's use construction as an example. When you go and buy a policy and that money goes in reserves, the insurance company is allowed to match the investment strategy to the potential payout time. If you said, you know, let's take health insurance, it's a very short window because you pay the premiums today and within three to four months, you know, you're paying out the claims. But those companies make the float on billions of dollars, even holding money for three billions of dollars for three months gives them an investment return. But if you're a construction company and for our captives, we go to the insurance commissioner and say, look, this is a 14 year time frame. So we are using an investment strategy or their investment advisors are to match those payout terms. So you could get much more long term investments, which gives you a higher yield versus the short term. So we have clients that will take that and and they will use those reserves to the one thing you cannot do is loan it back to your business. But they may finance their accounts receivable. They may go and buy a backhoe. And lease it out of the, the insurance co. So they create another entity. They loan the money to that. And then that entity buys the backhoe and then they lease it to their business. So, I mean. <laughs> yeah, this stuff, I, do, I, I find it fascinating in, in how you can put together these different entities and, and legally move money around, making sure everybody's and everything's on side, but that's how you effectively manage your capital. And, and I can see now when you put these pieces together, where it could come together and like, what a great example of a construction company and how they could be doing that. Yeah. And we had a client who had a lot of excess capital and surplus and they came to us, I don't know, a year ago and said, we want to put a million dollars into Bitcoin. So we got approval from the insurance commissioner. So they did it. They bought a million dollars of Bitcoin at $15,000 a coin. I think it's risky. It could go down. And they're like, well, let's just see. You know, and now when it's at $60,000, they seem brilliant in that. Uh, yeah, in their gamble. Yeah. But I mean, it, it's crazy. So they've done some really good stuff. So it's not just liquid. It's not just regular investments that you think about, there's a lot of flexibility on what they can do with that money. So another thing to this, when you set up a captive, you need somebody like yourself to be there and advise through it because the owner of a construction company or their CFO or their VP of finance likely is not going to have the experience and knowledge to go and, and work with the regulators and to you know present the case and say, hey, we don't need we don't need your the average insurance company. We're doing it ourselves. Who is that person? What is that person? And and also, what are the costs of setting setting this up? Yeah, great question. I won't say what we do is. I mean, we're not doing cold fusion. You know, we're not curing cancer. Not rocket surgery. Okay. Yeah. But at the same time, so my my partner Jared plays poker, and he's really good at it. And he's fond of saying that poker takes five minutes to learn, but a lifetime to master. Mm. And I would say captives are the same way. 
because it's the subtle nuances. It's the stuff you don't know. The stuff you know that can hurt you, people stay out of. But it's the stuff you don't know, you don't know, that really hurts you. As a captive manager, all we do is design it, do the reinsurance treaties, do all of the filings, do all of the record keeping, claims payments, anything to do with running the insurance company is what we do. Two things we don't do, we don't ever touch money and we don't sell product. We're like a third party administrator for the insurance company. Right. Okay. Yeah, I could see that conflict of interest as well if you're managing the money on, on a part of that and on and on. So that's where you'd have a third party money manager come in and, and it's whoever our clients, man, we, we write the investment policy statement and get it approved, but it's up to them to find their own money manager. We don't even recommend money management. You know, we completely stay out of when we started our business. That was something we toyed with. You know, we had investment licenses. We had insurance licenses. Should we do that? You know, and now that we're the third largest amount of premium in the world, it seems like it was a, a bad decision because if we had, if we were actually managing the billions of dollars between all of the different insurance companies, that'd be another stream of revenue. It was kind of the whole philosophy when we started was make your competition your clients. So we wanted insurance brokers to bring us the stuff. We wanted money managers to bring us their good clients. But if they knew we managed money or sold product, then they would go somewhere else with that. So that's where, that's why we designed it the way we did. But to set up your insurance company, you know, it, it's probably, let's call it on the low end, $30,000. And on the high end, it's $50,000. Hmm. And yep. our management fee is roughly $3,000 a month. That's our entire business model. Wow. What are the hangups? You, you draw the reference to poker and that lifetime to learn. I, I could see some potentials in the sense of interpretation of a tax law or an insurance law that could cause some hangups. What are the hangups you see and what are the things that uh, a potential, you know, one of our listeners who says, hey, maybe this is an option to our to our insurance conundrum, where should they be careful? On the tax side, okay? Whenever you have the ability to accumulate money without paying taxes on it, there are people that will, I mean, it's not even leading edge, but it's bleeding edge. They will over-reserve. There's jurisdictions in the world that do not require audited financial statements or statements of actuarial opinion that can get you into trouble because then it's just the business owner saying, well, I think I need this in my insurance or in my captive. And I think this is the premium I should pay, but it's never backed up by an actuary. Mm. You know, so that's where the taxing authorities can come in and say, no, we don't, you know, you could have bought that policy for a hundred thousand dollars and you're charging yourself $800,000 for it. Right. They can disallow that. So I think it's you want to stick with jurisdictions that are safe, secure, been in it for a while, have really good regulators and infrastructure. You know, there's certain ones that are fly by night and it may seem attractive in the beginning because there's less regulation. But my feeling is regulation is your friend because it keeps you in the middle of the road versus way out in front or way behind. 
Another question there, when you speak of jurisdictions, are you just talking state by state or are we talking offshore jurisdictions? What do you mean by jurisdictions? Jurisdictions, meaning it could be states, different states have different laws, and it could be onshore versus offshore. We have to take a look at where their business is. You know, if you're in the states and all of your business is in the East Coast, then form an insurance company on the East Coast. If your business is in Europe, then it also has to do with where are you a taxpayer. So if you're a, let's say you're a Canadian taxpayer and you have a business in Europe, then you may look at a Guernsey or an Isle of Man as your jurisdiction because of the tax treaty to bring those reserves and profit back into Canada at a lower. Yeah, a favorable, favorable rate. Yeah. Correct. Hmm. We look at all of that stuff. You know, we have a, an insurance company in Cartagena, Colombia, where the people are Panamanian citizens. So we set up their insurance company in Bermuda because of the tax treaty between all three of those countries. So they have the ability to move premiums to their captive and then reinsure. So as a ins- big insurance company, I mean, it's a big, well-known national Colombian insurance company, but they wanted to take a certain line of their business and reinsure it off their books because it limited the amount of capacity they had to write other stuff. So they mm. reinsured it to their Bermuda company, and then they have the ability to bring the, those profits back to Panama. So, yeah. there, I mean, there's a lot of different stuff. I would say another thing is you need to make sure that you get adequate reinsurance. You know, there's some people, I mean, I'd say the common thread with all of our clients is they hate paying insurance. Okay. Yep. They just hate it a little bit less when it's their own insurance company. But the thought of buying reinsurance, it often hurts their stomach. So like, right. oh, we, we don't, we've never had a claim in this. You know, they have a portfolio of properties of $300 million. And they said, we've never had a claim, so we're going to take all that risk ourselves. Well, that's really risky. So mm-hmm. that's where we come in and we say, you know what, that's penny wise and pound foolish. And then don't put all your insurance in your captive. If you can buy, if, you, if a policy in the market, you can get a million dollar policy for $7,000. It's not worth it. Yeah. You know, that in the marketplace, because one claim every 50 years could wipe out all your profit. So you have to be smart with what you do. So that's where we come in and help people look at it objectively to say whether or not it makes sense to them. Fascinating. Fascinating. Maybe let's let's just wrap up the world of captives and insurance there. Any final points you have there to leave the listeners with? I love it. It's fascinating. If they're paying insurance premiums, then they should definitely they're paying large insurance premiums and have good claims then they should definitely look at captives. Let me ask this question again, too, because I do not know a lot about the the insurance world. Good claims. What is a good claim versus a bad claim? Let's just say if your claims that you have are less than 50% of your premiums, then you're probably a good candidate. Okay, as as a rule of thumb. And so you're a construction company and you're a good construction company. And you might get a, a, a small claim because of a, a leaky roof on a part of a garage and it was an easy, easy fix, but by no means is it a hundred or plus percent of, of your, um, your, your premiums that you would be paying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
But even with construction, it's different because, I mean, we have a construction company that they were paying about four and a half million dollars a year in their construction insurance. And we were able to get them. So they paid that four and a half to their own insurance company. We got a large insurance company to front it. So as far as all of everyone's concerned, it's a, you know, an A-rated huge insurance company, but they just reinsure all that risk to our client. So all that money's sitting there. And we were able, they take the first million dollars of every claim up to, I think it's 3.5, 3.6 million total. So once they do that, they're completely off the hook. And we got that reinsurance for like $800,000. So now the 4 million goes into their captive. They paid out $800,000. So they're left with 3.2, but their maximum liability is 3.5, 3.6. Just by sitting on that money, for 10 years, I mean, using the rule of 72 at a, at a decent rate of return, that money's going to double every seven to 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So by the time they actually have a claim, their three and a half million could be, you know, yeah. 7 million and their maximum liability is three and a half. And that's the way insurance companies work. Interesting game of chess. I'll pass it back to you just quickly to finalize and, and wrap up captives, because I do want to talk more about uh, some of the books you've written. So if we can, just give me a final wrap up on captives. Interesting world. You know, one thing that I listening to your podcast, you talk a lot of with about private equity. You talk a lot about people that are that are going to be exiting their business or buying other businesses. And I will tell you, that's an area that we do work in from the standpoint of let's say your private equity. If you had your own insurance company, when you go out to buy West Inc. and you have your own captive, then risk management advisors can look at the insurance portfolio for that company you're buying to figure out, can you insure that cheaper in your own insurance company? Hmm. And if you can, there's instant arbitrage in there. So that purchase becomes more valuable because you have the ability to... Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yep. And then... Conversely, we have people that have, that have had their captives for years and then they're going to sell their business and they're going to have to leave a bunch of money in a trust account for reps and warranties. But we have the captive issue a reps and warranties insurance policy. Hmm. So they get paid that the people that are purchasing the business, they pay a premium to the captive of the seller. Where before, if I'm going to buy your business, I have to use many times after-tax dollars to go and buy it. Well, this way, you're using deductible dollars, and it goes into the captive, which is also tax-favored for the seller. So it's one of those rare times where it's actually a win-win because for the same transaction, the seller nets more and the buyer pays less. So for your clients that are or your listeners that are thinking about selling their business or they're acquiring businesses, that could be a great way to do it. And then all you do is you set up an escrow account within that insurance company for those dollars in the event that you actually have some sort of claim that comes down the road. There's tons of different ways to look at this. Okay, well, let's I want to switch gears here because. Along with the world or the work you do in insurance, you, you've written a few books or a couple of books, as I understand. One of them is called You Can Make It, But Can You Keep It? And I thought that was a bit of an interesting title because you look at those who build up 
very successful businesses. At times, that adage, the, the bigger you are, the harder you fall, can be applicable to that. And so what's the, the premise behind that book? And what are some of the examples you've seen where there's a lot of risk, a lot of downfall, if, if not uh, accounted for? Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, that came out, that was 2008. And it was kind of not, I wouldn't say festering, but I was thinking about it for a while. So my wife's uncle was the retired VP of Shell Oil. And I'm a new financial advisor. And I'm going to go see him because he's the wealthiest person that I knew. So I had all my stuff. I'm all prepared for it. And he said, Wes, you don't get it. If I woke up tomorrow, because I was going to say, we could do this with your portfolio. We could do this with life insurance. He goes, you don't get it. If I woke up tomorrow and I had twice as much money, my life wouldn't change. If Mm. I had half as much, it would. And that really struck me. And I'm like, wow, am I looking at financial planning the wrong way? That's where it hit. And as a result, what that book does is it goes through different. And I told you, I'm, I'm kind of a researcher, but it goes through things that could strip wealth away from people, whether and, you know, a common thing that I see is people are so worried about their businesses and their business assets that they put trusts in place. They put business entities in place. But rarely do I see people lose big chunks of money for something they did in their business. Mm. Stuff that happens in their personal life where, you know, let's say that their child is driving a car and hits somebody and that person dies. So they spend all their time building up their business and protecting it. And then this unfortunate personal event happens that affects their wealth from that standpoint. You know, so it's a lot of business structures. It goes into estate planning. And it kind of the philosophy with estate planning is, you know, and it's getting a lot of press in the U.S. because they're talking about lowering the estate exemption from $11 million down to like three to five million dollars. But when they had estate taxes, then, you know, it, it seemed to me that it was all a bunch of factions that were using that to their advantage without ever trying to figure out what the people actually wanted who had the wealth. So you had life insurance companies who positioned life insurance to say, hey, you're going to owe all this money in estate taxes. So why don't you buy life insurance to protect it? I'm not saying life insurance is a bad deal. You know, I think I have 22, $23 million in life insurance right now. I totally believe in it. But it's them creating a product for that. And then you had charities that said, oh, you don't have to pay estate taxes if you give it to us and our foundation or our college or university. And, and, you know, so they they went about it that way. But it it was never, what do you want to do with your wealth to pass it to the next generation if you want to pass it? But everyone talks about what people should be doing without actually asking them what they want to do. So you can make it, but can you keep it? Goes through wills, trusts, business entities, things you can do, onshore, offshore trusts. You know, I have my own offshore trust, but it's a limited partnership in the States where 99% is an offshore irrevocable trust. Hmm. And I've moved it from St. Lucia to Nevis to Belize. And Belize has a law that says it's illegal to file a lawsuit against a trust that's been in existence more than 90 days. And if somebody files a lawsuit, 
they have to put an equal amount of money in cash with the court to file the lawsuit. So, Corey, let's say you're suing me for $10 million. Well, you actually have to take $10 million of your assets and not cash or not letters of credit or a bond. You have to take $10 million in cash and put it with the court in Belize. That's hmm. a huge deterrent for people. Yes. Wow. But I set this up in 2004, but while all my financial seas are calm and they've been calm, all the money stays in my limited partnership. It's just when and if I ever got a judgment creditor, I can terminate the partnership. And that's not considered a fraudulent transaction because it's terminated in a business. But 99% goes to the offshore irrevocable trust. And 1% stays with me and my wife. Right. And that's and there's uh, there's the payout of the liability. Yeah. And, and that's where I mean, we've had clients that have gone through this you know, and they've been sued. So what I've done is I've, I've set it up a while ago, but I tweak my plan based on things that I've seen go wrong with other clients. Yes. Right. And what has gone wrong with others? Like where, I mean, because these things become <laughs> complex laws change. I can't imagine moving an entity from, you know, three different offshore jurisdictions, as you made an example of, one missed document you forgot to sign could it all unravel, right? Who knows? But no, that's easy. Moving from one jurisdiction to another, that's easy. I mean, okay. Yeah. But I'm just to paint the picture that, I mean, you know, these things are, are, are complex and there's, there can be a lot of admin to them and things mm-hmm. change all the time. And so, yeah, where do you, where do you see that there's potential downfalls or, or, you know, kind of gotchas when doing this kind of stuff? Well, if you're moving money offshore, there's a lot of requirements as far as letting the, the government know you're moving money offshore because they want to know where it is. They want to know, you know, why you're moving it. So, I mean, I have an account that's set up offshore, but it only has a thousand dollars in it and it's a hmm. non-interest bearing account. Cause remember what I said, while everything's good and safe here, the money stays in the partnership here. Hmm. So I had to report that back in 2005 when I funded it, but since after then, because I don't make any interest on it, then no you know, tax to return. Yeah. Correct. So, I mean, I'll give you an example of something that happened in the last month with a client. This was a good client and had a, was married for years, 30 years. They got divorced. And then nine years later, he met his new wife and they were married for probably 10 years. But they set up a, when he first got remarried, when they were going to get remarried, he did a prenup that basically said all she gets was, you know, let's just call it a million dollars. But his net worth was 300 million, had a lot of real estate, had three really successful businesses. But the estate taxes are about 50, let's call it between federal and state, about 50% on all your assets above $11 million. Well, because all of his assets went to the trust and not his wife, because you get an unlimited marital exemption. So if, if I were to die, everything goes to my wife in the trust. There's no taxes due at her death. There's taxes due. But that's why we have I chose life insurance to do that. But he didn't believe in life insurance. But as a result, so his current wife gets a million now they owe about, after you pay off loans and everything else, 
his heirs owe about, call it $100 million in estate taxes that are due within nine months. Wow. And they're like, well, what do we do? We're going to have to sell real estate. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly what you have to do. Hmm. And then take on more capital gains. Yeah. Or hmm. go and borrow the money. Yep. And they said, well, what if we went and borrowed $100 million? And I'm like, you can, but let's say you're paying that off at 4% plus principal. You're, that, I mean, that's $4 million a year that you have just as an interest payment without even touching the principal. And if you have a 10-year loan, you know, that's $14 million a year you have to pay just to pay off the loan on the estate taxes. I mean, that, that's where stuff goes horribly wrong. Hmm. And yeah. It's the unintended consequences. Well, you know, something going that horribly wrong when you have that amount of money. I mean, not the end of the world, but it is from a, a you know, a business standpoint and uh academic exercise thinking through this. It's it's really these are these are things that need to be planned for. Yeah, ex- exactly. And wow. that's the thing is take emotion out of it and just look at just look at the overall structure and, and what are you trying to accomplish? You know, it, it was always, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But it was never, you know, and that's one of the where you just didn't have didn't have a time. It was and there's a lot of turmoil in the wake of that didn't need to happen. I, I want to ask this before we wrap up, as we've already already hit an hour here. Some of our listeners and I'm going to put myself in this bracket as well. We are not worth hundreds of millions of dollars or millions. Not yet. What can we take from your experience in, in going out there and building ourselves and financially planning for ourselves that's applicable to building that financial resilience, as I'm hearing here? And the question comes also from the standpoint of, I hope it's not just your typical financial advice that you see every financial planner on YouTube blab on about. There's There's got to be something more that yeah, somebody can do who is who's starting out, who's building, who has ambitions to build big things. If your listeners are building a business, then one thing I would say is build your business with the end in mind. Instead of just starting the business, actually create the entity so that if you sell it for $100 million, you're going to get the best benefit from that, even if it's small today. And let's say you sold it for $5 million or a million dollars, at least by designing it in the beginning that way, you have a better chance of keeping more of the money that you work so hard to make. I would also say to put in systems in your business so that you design the business to work without you. And I'm, you have a few podcasts where you had people talk about that, but it's so true because if you design the business so that you're not critical to it. I mean, a big mistake I see people name do is they name it like Cleveland Investments or, you know, Smith, yeah, their, their name Smith is Accounting. it. Their name is in it. So like risk management advisors, I never wanted my name on it because I wanted a, any potential acquirer to see it as something independent from me. Now, sure, I'm vital to it, I would say, because I'm still the president, but you know, I, I didn't want, I wanted a potential purchaser to see it, but if you have the systems and, and you make yourself secondary or tertiary to the business, it's that much more valuable. I got a great piece of advice from an investment banker. This is a few years ago. 
a guy you should have on your show named John Ratliff, if you haven't had him. All right. He said, Wes, you have to keep building your business as if there's Rembrandt's in the attic. And I'm like, what do you mean by Rembrandt's hmm. in the attic? And he said, you and I are both bidding on the same home. And I know that there's a Rembrandt in the attic. How much more am I willing to pay for that home than you because you didn't have that information? And that to me was a big aha where, you know, instead of going to sell the business, it's not just the business. It's the computer system. It's the actuarial underwriting system. It's the risk management system. It's the claim system. Like all of these things are systematized. Yeah. With a manual so somebody can come in and then somebody, a potential purchaser says, oh, you know, I can see how this computer system will make this part of my business better. Yeah. So you position the whole thing as a strategic purchase. Interesting the, the analogy of, uh, you know, Rembrandt's in the attic. And I see where he's going with that. And I also think to your, to your point, there are those systems and building your company now. And it's, it's being able to communicate. And then if you were selling your business, being able to, to demonstrate the value of those and potentially even the applicability to the acquirer of, hey, this one system here could add X to your bottom line, meaning Y to our top line price. Yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah. And, you know, when we, we actually did sell our business back in 2019, and what I did is I went down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out how could I have this kind of the, you can make it, but can you keep it? How can I make sure that this money lasted the rest of my life? Mm. So I looked at all these mutual funds. I looked at ETFs. I looked at the market. I studied it and I went out. So we have Dorsey Wright, who they were bought by NASDAQ. They're just a research firm. They were bought by NASDAQ for $2 billion. And I said, I want to create my own ETFs. And they're like, what? And I know a bunch of RIAs. So I went to them and said, hey, you know what? I think I've designed a better mousetrap for not losing money. And so I created these three ETFs. And between my money, which was, let's say, small, not anywhere huge, but and their money, we started off with $80 million between these three ETFs. And it's grown in the last 21 months from $80 million to $600 million in money. And I mean, it's a very simple concept. It's if your listeners are familiar with and you're familiar with the S&P 500. Yes. Everyone, yep. everyone looks at the S&P 500, but few people look at the S&P low vol 50. Low which is, volume? Which is the lowest volatility stock. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. In the S&P. So if you were to invest just when the S&P goes up and down, the 50 lowest volatility ones, they don't move as much as the rest of them. Mm. But what happens is if you, when new money into the S&P goes below 50% and money market goes above 40%, it automatically rebalances. It goes mm. to cash until those reverse. But I mean, it's a simple concept, but, and, and it's kind of the way you have more money is not losing it. Yeah. So if you were in the S&P 500 from 1996 to 2019, you would have done 8.1 times your money. If just by selling off and going back to cash, when new money into the S&P goes below 50%, you would have had 32 times your money. Wow. And it's just, it's selling off when the market, 
goes down and waiting for the long-term trends to recover. So you would have been out for a little in 98. You would have been out in 2001. It wouldn't have gone back until 2003. You would have been out in March of 2008 before the meltdown, gone back in in nine, gone back out in nine. I mean, it just, there's all these time periods and it's just, it's a very simple concept. But so for your people that are accumulating wealth, I would say all the investment advice and, you know, it may go against your philosophy, but is not to try to time the market. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I've been able to show empirically that you can smartly time the market to avoid the downturns. Right. These are ETFs, as in they're traded now? You have them set and traded? Yeah, they're all, they're all available for anyone. And that's what the only reason they grew so fast because ETFs don't usually get volume for the first three to five years hmm. because all the institutions want to see track record. LPL, the financial company, they put two of the three as, as the top 10 performing ETFs of 2020. And that's what, that's what made them grow so quickly. But there's, there's a growth, there's a value, and then there's so it's DWUS, DWAW, and DWEQ. So there's US, all world, yep. and equal weight, which is really, that one underperformed last year, but it's more like it's value versus growth. Yeah. I, I make a very small, you know, nine basis points for for coming up with the concept and having the intellectual Which property. I'm looking at time. I'm like, damn, I think we might have to have another episode here because there's lots of areas we've meandered into that I could just keep on asking questions. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and how we got onto the subject was came from the, the question of how can... Uh, entrepreneurs building businesses and and the younger generation start to build their wealth without your typical standard financial advice. And so uh, I think that's been interesting what you've shared there. Final thoughts uh, to wrap up our episode here, to summarize the, the world you're in and, and yeah, any final thoughts for the audience? No, I, I really appreciate you having me on. You know, I love what I do. Insurance to me is fascinating. And there's so many different areas and understanding how to maneuver through the different policies and what are the language and what are the exclusions, you know, and, and making sure that, you know, we start with an analysis of the business owners, all of their insurance. So they actually know what they have mm. because too often they don't know what they have until they have a claim, just like COVID. You know, so many business owners thought, hey, I have business interruption insurance. And then they found out during COVID, hey, I have nothing. Wow. I'm not getting yep. paid for this at all because there wasn't any damage to my property. But we've covered viral and bacterial events in our clients' captives since 2015-16. So as of right now, we've paid out over $50 million from clients' captives back to their businesses. And some of those were a lifesaver. That kept their business going mm. during, during COVID. So it's, Of course. It's, and, and I just want to, you know, make this point that insurance companies have very little interest in paying out claims. They're going to look for for whatever way possible to avoid having to pay out. Yeah, I mean, there's it's a joke within the insurance industry, but it's deny, delay, defend. That's the three D's of insurance. Wow. But and then you look at health insurance. I mean, one of the reasons health insurance is so expensive is because when they passed the Affordable Care Act. They limited, they made insurance companies pay out 80% of their premiums in medical claims. So when that passed, the elected officials were like, this is great. 
because now they'll have to charge less because the year it passed, so United Healthcare was doing 110 billion in premium. They paid out 60 billion in claims. Hmm. So the elected officials are like, wow, this will limit them to $72 billion in premium. So everyone's going to save money. They have no idea how the world works. And as a result, insurance companies, they have overhead, they have commissions, they have they have to make their money and they have to pay dividends to shareholders. So if the only way you make more money as an insurance company is to pay out more claims. So as a result, you know, where when it's passed, on average, the payment that insurance companies were paying doctors was about 150% of Medicare. Now it's 600% of Medicare. So that's one where it's the opposite. They have a direct incentive to overpay claims because that allows them to collect more money in the form of premiums for them to line their pockets huh. and pay their My God, that's uh that would be a ten part series just talking about the the US medical system and, and insurance. And we wow. got into insurance when we started our insurance company, we started in workers comp because workers comp is a fifty percent margin business. So okay. if, you're, if a client pays a million in premium, we expect half a million in claims. But if we got to go in and say, well, we think we're going to have to pay out 800. Well, now we get to collect an, even though we haven't paid it, we get to collect an extra hundred a year each year for the next three years, plus the normal increase. That's the way the experience mod works. So if your clients are paying, but it doesn't matter what carrier you go to, it's almost like collusion because that experience mod goes with you everywhere. So that's, I mean, they have an incentive to overpay claims or over-reserve claims because A, they don't have to pay taxes on it, but also it allows them to charge more money in the future. Crazy. Okay. Wow. I've definitely been left here with a lot of food for thought. So Wesley, I appreciate your time. And um, the final question is, is where can the audience follow your work? I mean, I put out videos regularly on insurance-related matters. It's kind of technical stuff, but that's it. It's YouTube, Risk Management Advisors. Our website is riskmgmtadvisors.com. I also have a, a website that's not branded for risk management. It's captiveinsurance101.com, and it gives all the basics. You can download an ebook on how insurance how captives work. It has all the rules, regulations, different jurisdictions, everything, but it's, it has not, it's not branded risk management advisors. I just, my whole thing is let's just put out good information because, you know, as you do on your podcast, you say the world is full of misinformation. So that's Mm. why you're doing what you do because you're putting out good information for people to learn from. So I wanted to kind of do the same thing in my little tiny niche in the world. It's a very fine niche, but it's uh, it's fascinating and well done and really glad we connected. Thank you for your time. No, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.